Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast where we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba in the news. Episode 414, recorded live July 25th, 2019. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where it is still July. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. Again, glad to be here. I'm enjoying yeah. the non-rain week. Non-rain and actually beautiful weather. This is more of a spring or fall weather. We had some, I actually turned the air conditioner off for a while. I went out the other day on the bike, it was 69 degrees, and I almost went back to get me a long sleeve shirt. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't broke down to that point yet, but uh, it is very nice, very good weather. You well, know, it does get a little chillier at night. Yeah, yeah. But usually, I'm 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 by then. So, yeah, my bedtime about eight thirty. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, I feel like so old. We were talking before the show. My kids are uh, going off to college, so it's like I feel like I'm finally able to get caught up on stuff that I was just too busy for otherwise. So it's kind of odd. Still doing the drywalling, aren't you? Oh, yeah. That's that's going to be, uh, I think I'll have that done, like I said, by Christmas is my goal. I'm just curious. <laughs> you said, you know, done. I thought, I'd, well, done with the drywall. That's good. No, no. I'm uh, my, my drywall progress is I, I finished up sanding probably Sunday night. But the problem is I've got one more seam. And, and I'm not talking about the whole house, but just the the kitchen, dining room, living room area. I've got a strip I've got to do, and that one's about 15 feet long. And I couldn't do it because that's where everything's piled, so then i got to move everything out of there so I can do that strip. So that will probably be my tomorrow night thing, hopefully get that done by the weekend. And and then while the drywall's drying there, then I'll prime up the the parts that I've repaired. So hopefully within a week or so I'll have all the ceiling done, which – only puts me about nine weeks behind schedule. You know, in, in your mind, you always think things will take shorter than they are. It's like, yeah, drywall, that should be, what, maybe two or three days. And you paint in a day, you know, the ceiling in a day and the wall in another day and then do the floor and I'm done. But it doesn't seem to work out that way. I don't think I've ever done a project that I haven't wound up going back to the hardware store at least twice a day if it's a, short-term project yeah this one's all sorts of stuff plus there's the uh do you do what is reasonable and you can afford or do you go over so i'm kind of you know there's no sense getting too far ahead of myself because uh it just means i have to spend money quicker <laughs> so but i do have the flooring all purchased and and probably half the paint i'm hoping it's all the paint but the reality is probably not well, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. We have a chat room, not quite full, but, uh, you know, good turnout. We have Christopher, Derek, and Eric are all in there. And I'm sure we'll have a few more show up as 
as it goes on. So this first story we have is a man alleges he failed his scuba physical because of additives and cigarettes, and he is seeking damage from Ultra. Uh, a Bellington man has filed suit against the owner of the maker Marlboro cigarettes over its allegations it used additives and its products to make them more addictive. Dale P. Dale P. Field Jr. filed a complaint in Rudolph's circuit court against Altera Group Incorporated, alleging negligence and other counts. Defendant later removed the case to the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of West Virginia. The plaintiff alleges the defendant knowingly and willfully used additives in its product to make them more addictive for the purpose of profits. He alleges the defendant's actions prevented him from quitting smoking. The plaintiff alleges he has been damaged by a decreased capacity of lung volume usage from smoking. He alleges he failed his physical to be accepted in this commercial scuba diving class because he failed to pass the lung volume test. The plaintiff is seeking $750,000 in damages, attorney fee, court cost. The plaintiff is representing himself. Well, there's a, that always works out, doesn't it? Well, Represent- it always looks like. They're trying to, well, if I file, maybe they'll settle out of court and I'll still make money. You know, the thing is, he's actually, it's not an insane, insane amount. You know, it's $750,000. But part of this could be he's he's hoping that he can bait somebody into uh, maybe an attorney taking the case. Maybe that's why he went so low. Some some attorney will go, you can do much better than that and, and actually help them get it. But uh, they probably did him a favor. I can't think that being a scuba diver, a commercial diver, and smoking has got to be a good combination. I know True. I'm, I'm still not those sure what a, who do it. I'm still not sure what a commercial scuba diver is. Oh, yeah. I, I think they just mean commercial diver. Because is there a commercial scuba diving class? I mean, that would be... That, that's what I'm saying. I've never heard of one of those. Yeah, a dive that. instructor. I think they just... Probably the paper, the editor said, well, if you don't put scuba in it, people won't know what you're talking about. They'll think you're commercial diving. They're thinking that you're like a, uh, you know, a high, high board diver sponsored or something. Who knows? I just don't understand... I mean, yeah. I think it's been publicized. Smoking's bad for you. Blah blah blah. I I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think there's a reason why an attorney didn't pick this one up. It'd be interesting to see where this does go, though, or if it's settled out of court, and you'll you'll never know. No, no, they'll they'll say they both need to be silenced. And here's a follow-up of an article we had before. This one's from DiverNet. Divers half clear bell wreck explosives. We talked about that they were going to start working on it. A uh, week-long operation to make the famed World War II ore carrier wreck off Bell Island in Newfoundland safer for recreational divers has been hit by poor weather and underwater access problems. Uh, Royal Canadian Navy divers succeeded in clearing unexploded ordnance for two of the four wrecks, one of those being the Shang, what was it, SAG? Why is there an A between every, after every consonant? S A G A N A G A. Saganaga. <laughs> Everybody from Canada's yelling at me. 
The British vessel had been anchored in the Conception Bay in September 1942 and was torpedoed and struck by a German U-boat, U-513, and it lies between 27 and 37 meters. Also swept clear was another U-boat victim, the Canadian Rose Castle, lying 33 to 48 meters deep, but another Canadian vessel, the Lord Strathcona, Kana? Strathcona? Strathcona? Maybe? And the French PLM-27. Ah, those PLM-27s have yet to be cleared of explosives. Operating for the vessel HMCS. <laughs> this is Shawanigan. Divers from the Navy's fleet diving unit Atlantic succeeded in removing 82 artillery shells, two boxes of 303 rounds. Explosives were taken away in an armored vehicle and later detonated at safely in a range. Divers who used surface-supplied uh, air as opposed to scuba, hampering them in windy, chopping conditions while gaining access to some explosive devices proved more difficult than expected. They were, however, able to carry out a consonant of the uh, Lord Shathcona and the PLM-27 and plan to schedule another operation to remove the remaining ordnance. Their mission was part of Canadian's government's initiative to clear unexplored ordnance from its water, there were 60 deaths as a result of four sinkings in the Battle of Bell Island in 1942, but the well-preserved wrecks have since become an international dive attraction. And then Diver Magazine says they'll be carrying a feature on this in coming months. That first picture of the diver on supplied air is interesting because that looks like a cannon right behind him to the left. It certainly does. And that's pretty yeah. decent viz. That's beautiful viz. And I can believe it's not as clear under him because that's where he may have been mucking around. Yeah, or somebody else is down there probing. Yeah. Yeah, so I hear that's beautiful diving. That might be worth uh, trying to make a trip because I always think of the uh, the mines on the island. I didn't really associate that there were good wrecks there. And then a Harlem dive shop hosts empowerment event on Women's Dive Day. The Harlem Dive Shop gave women a chance to prove diving is not just a sport for men. Bubbles or not, North Louisville Street gave women a free opportunity to learn or brush up on diving skills for the Women's Dive Day event Saturday. The event was one of 100 being held in 1,000 countries. One of 100 being held in 1,000 countries. How, how, how does that work out? Just the math. So it, that event was one of a hundred that were being held. So each country got a 10th of a event. (laughs) (laughs) It would be one of a thousand held in hundreds of countries would have made more sense, but uh, to mark the occasion for the world, single largest diving event, according to Patty, what's that back? No, you're right. It's like a (laughs) hundred being held in a thousand countries. I would have been the other way. It seems like. Yeah. Yeah, that's only a zero. What's that matter? Uh, anyone may celebrate the Recreational Diving Membership and Diving Training Organization hosts the annual event to spread awareness for women divers. There's a stigma that this may be a guy sport, and I can't do this because I'm a woman, said Tara McNair, uh, the general manager of Bubbles or not. We want to break that and say, absolutely not. Come down and we'll show you not only can women do it, but they can do it well. We want ladies to come out and have a good time. Where they fall in love with scuba, or it's just a one-day event. They're here to hang out and socialize with other ladies. This is 
really all we could ask for everyone to come out and leave with a smile on their face. The activity was also a way for women to figure out if they wanted to continue diving in the future. The shop provided equipment for women of all skill levels. Uh, Eva Curry of Grovetown said, it's a little intimidating when you have a bunch of guys talking shop. When you have a bunch of ladies, it's a different atmosphere. It seems more relaxed. The women started a brief classroom course at the shop. They learned the basics, including proper breathing, hand signals, how to use the equipment. The women put on equipment, got in a pool in Deering, Georgia, that was used to simulate a dive and work their way to the bottom with instructors and practice skills and played underwater games. Well, you're not simulating a dive. You're actually diving. I think they might have meant simulating a dive in the open water outside of a pool. Yeah. Yeah, their business opened in 2016. The shop provides diver training, sells diving equipment, does equipment repairs. So good for them. Uh, you know, we're always looking for more divers. We need more divers. And I get tired of looking at the guys all the time, you know. Is there a stigma that this is a guy sport? I don't think so. But, you know, I hear that a lot in, you know, doing a lot of STEM education. That's something that we that STEM education is really trying to get is more diversity when you look at the number of guys versus women in those fields, it's vastly you know, disproportionate to the population. And we kind of see that in scuba diving. So, But uh, why? Why do you think? Uh, I think it's a long, it, it's a long trend. Well, it, let's, let's contrast it with something else. Horses. You know, it's exactly the opposite way in horses. You know, there's one guy rides a horse for every 40 women who ride a horse. So I think it's part of it's just what culture is popularized and, you know, what you look up to and what you want to do when you're young. I mean, that's part of it. Well, I think the key item there is what do you want to do? I mean, if you want to play with a horse, I never struck me to play with horses. And I think it really did have a lot to do with Mike Nelson. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that wasn't because it was a guy thing. It was, that's pretty freaking cool going underwater. Yeah. The stigma, I'm, I'm not sure about that. Yeah. I, I will say, though, back in the day when we first started having training, my first instructor was ex-Navy, and he was a, well, very thorough, to say the least. Yeah. And it was a lot different than it is nowadays. So maybe in the old days it was more guy-related, but I don't think it is nowadays. No, I think in the U.S. it's not as bad. Um, I I think in resorts, it's still, you know, even 20 years ago, when you talk to people and they're going to go to a tropical tropical location, what did you want to do? They wanted to go scuba diving. And I think that's part of a larger problem, not just guys and girls. It's uh, diving is more than a activity you do just when you go on a vacation. You know, you I think the it. big the big hold up in diving for anybody, and probably especially women, discretionary income is it is expensive. Mm-hmm. Now I can yeah. see that as a, a hold up for a lot of people, not just women. But then again, if they keep saying that women make less than men, they don't have the discretionary income, maybe the price is part of it. Yeah. Or, 
maybe something even simpler than that is it's discretionary income. But if you were to rank the population of things they want to try, where does it fall? I mean, for all of us who are divers, at some point we decided we had the discretionary income and it was high enough on the list that we didn't have something else that we put in front of it. So maybe there's just things that other people like to do or are more interested in trying than scuba diving. I, that's, I think that's, that's probably true. I, I do know part of it, though, for me was I, I like to look for stuff and I like to find treasure. Yeah. If you I, think you're going to recoup your money invested, that's a little different. You know? Yeah, that's a little crazy. Uh, yeah, and also I think part of it is people like to do what they associate other people that they feel they're like. And this goes, you know, through all stereotypes and ethnic groups. If you don't feel that your particular part of the population does diving and you don't know of anybody who does, then it's probably a little bit more of a perceived obstacle than if everybody who's exactly like you also does diving. So it's about being inclusive. Sometimes it's a matter of asking. I think uh, as a hobby or an activity, we're bad at asking. Uh, you know, with the uh, you you occasionally see the the what's that pool that Patty has that pool that goes around to the shows, but you've kind of got a captive audience in many of the events that they go to. Uh, so I don't know. This is something we're not going to solve here in a podcast, but well, no, I'm just curious about it. It's like my daughters know that it's it's not a man only sport, mm -hmm. and uh, I really believe the reason my my elder got involved in it actually was. Back in the day, you had to take physical education course when you were in college, at least for the yeah. freshman year. But if you took this, and this was an opportunity to take this at the local junior college, that counted as your PET course yeah. or your PE course. Yeah. Well, one thing that I think is going to be interesting, my, I just uh, did orientation with my daughter this year, and uh, she's going to Michigan State University, and they just – started a flat rate tuition. So anything between 14 and 19 credit hours is the same price. So I'm wondering if that might encourage people to take uh, students to maybe take some more of those elective that they really didn't feel like they had uh, the the room in their schedule or the money because you just have to pay for it. So I need, I need to take a look because I talked to my daughter about that. I'm like, Hey, you could do scuba diving as an elective. And, uh, so still trying. We'll get one more woman into diving somehow. And then uh, Jordan is submerging military tanks on purpose. This is to create a new dive site. On Wednesday, the country of Jordan unveiled the latest museum dedicated to military history. Though to get there, you'll need scuba certification as the hotel is located underwater off the coast of Aquaba in the Red Sea. According to BBC, the military sank several pieces, including tanks, helicopters, troop carriers, next to the coral reef to provide visitors with new type of museum. The museum, the Agua Special Economic Zone Authority, ASEZA, explained, will combine sports, environment, and exhibits. The new dive site includes 19 antique pieces, all of which were provided in the country's armed force. Each piece can now be found 92 feet or 28 meters below the surface, a new spot known as the Underwater Military Museum Dive Site. 
The concept sounds odd, thinking all gear should help improve the local marine environment. Artificial reefs do have an important value. Cindy Zipth, Executive Director of Ocean Action, a New Jersey-based environmental coalition, told the New York Times, these have to be the right materials that are suitable for that habitat. The state of New York completed a rather similar dive project to the reef system off the coast of Long Island. They sank parts of the old Zappin Z Bridge to help the reef grow. That sounds like an a intentional mispronunciation. Tappan Z Bridge? <laughs> <laughs> what do you do on that bridge, really? Uh, what they're trying to do is mimic when you're creating an artificial reef as a natural habitat, Zip said. I think the emphasis should be on habitat and the protection of marine life rather than repurposing the material as a museum. The Jordanian Museum in the Long Island, Sire, aren't the only ones out there, as CNN explained. Balran has its own underwater museum for its unique dive that sank a Boeing 747 airplane off the artificial island. Uh, Turkey also has a spot with a sunken Airbus jet near the northwestern coast. Yeah, I, I dive these all, all of them. See, we, we need an airline sponsor, hotel sponsor. Yeah. I'm looking at the picture of them, uh, and that looks like a free diver snorkeling over that uh, tank. Mm-hmm. That's really an uh, armored vessel with uh, aircraft cannons on it, anti-aircraft. But that doesn't look to be any 92 feet. No, that does. Unless the water is super clear, or maybe it's low tide, possibly. Yeah, it doesn't that that yeah, I agree. That looks But I like the visibility. Twenty five, yes. Beautiful. And I bet it gets better than this too. There's a little bit of uh sediment suspended. Yeah, I'd like to see more pictures. Yeah. Because yeah, it looks like that almost looks like an anti aircraft. It is. Armored, it's a, yeah. it's an armored vehicle. it's a tracked vehicle with a coop uh with a turret. And those are anti aircraft. Yeah. Weapons there. Yeah. That would be fun to dive. Put that on a quarry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's another thing. Why not? Well, it's like, not like, going to be a museum. That one comment about being a museum, as soon yeah. as it starts getting covered over, the museum aspect went away. So here's the question. Why? Because um, you can buy surplus like this, I'm sure. Can't you? Uh, that's going to be expensive. Of the salvage value. Well, I think you're going to pay for more than just the weight of it. Hmm. And if we're worried about putting a couple of thousand pounds of uh, weight on our buoys, <laughs> uh, I think this would cost a couple of shekels trying to get that out into the, the big lake. No, I, I wasn't thinking of big lake. I was and not be afraid of somebody pulling it off. Yeah, you're, if you're. I, if your boat is pulling that, dragging that, then yeah, you've, uh, yeah, you've earned it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, I was thinking more of like a quarry. I mean, those would be beautiful items dropped in a quarry. Yeah. And then an iconic Southport shipwreck may soon be sinking beneath the sand. One of the region's most iconic shipwrecks may soon sink beneath the sands, but it may not be that bad a thing, largely hidden by the, Shifting sandbanks, the Tower of Hope lies just off Southport, exposed at low water, but frequently hidden by the waves of the rising tides. The ship was wrecked in 1883 in atrocious conditions as it approached Liverpool from Wilmington 
in North Carolina, USA with a cargo of cotton. I'm just trying to figure out. It was coming from the U.S. and it ended up over in the U.K. then, I'm imagining. Uh, some sources indicate the Force 10 gales, the Star Hope collided with another vessel before a crew escaped the stricken craft to take refuge in a Crosby light ship. Unmanned, the Star Hope met her fate in a storm coming to rest in the sands south of Ainsdale, where she has since become a familiar landmark. In recent years, Sefton Council's organized guided tours so people can enjoy a look at the wreck. Sefton Council Green, Sefton Engagement Officer John Dempsey said walks out to the shipwreck, at least the ones that are safe to reach along the coast at low tides are always a privilege. With Willis muddied and caked in and sand having reversed traversed the channel or two, the further you get out from the dune base, the more it feels like another world. The best and safest way to visit a shipwreck on Sefton's coast is to join a guided walk, of course. Walking in a low tide zone should never be attempted on your own unless you have thorough knowledge of tides, channel weather, and all can be can change remarkably quickly. Recently, I led a walk out the remains of Star Hope, that magnificent old cotton trader that ran aground on January 20th, 1883. The sandbanks are slowly looming the southwest as they do it may engulf the wreck in the next few months, but that's a good thing. For Although it means the wreck is lost to visitors for a time, the sand gives the, rich, the wreck much needed protection from the elements. John Dempsey said, after long periods of exposure, the wreck has been out of the sand for more than two years now, a daily immersion by a tide, and the star is showing signs of wear and tear. The cat head, a structure used to help keep the anchor from banging in the outer hull, has decayed considerably, but once the sand takes the wreck again, it'll be cocooned from tidal currents and gales. And given the nature of the longshore drift, the process whereby sand moves up the Sefton coast, the wreck will reappear again, rising like the bones of a dinosaur. The local coastline offers much more than shipwrecks. So there's other discoveries being made. Jellyfish, moons, compass, lines, main regularly wash up this time of year. Then they go on to talk about other stuff. That makes sense. At least they didn't call it pristine. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But two years, I'm kind of surprised it's been out. That's a fairly long time for some of these wrecks. Mm Mm-hmm. But... And I'm not going to say pristine, but it's to see the uh, as many boards still connected the way they are. That is impressive. Compared to a lot of the ones we see that they get gaga yes. about, that's got some body to it. Yeah, it's it still has a a shape, and you can see that part of it. There's gonna there's a period of time where what we're seeing in the photo that was probably buried in the sand, but the other side, I can't tell if it's a port or starboard. Uh, that was probably exposed a lot longer or more frequently than the other. And the wreck of the SR Kirby is found in Lake Superior. Using a remotely controlled vehicle, the Great Lake Shipwreck Historical Society confirmed the identity of the ship more than 800 feet underwater. The SR Kirby sank in Lake Superior near Eagle Harbor on May 1916. It was a relatively unusual ship, and that was constructed using an iron framework with a wooden hull. The vessel was 294 feet long, built in 1890 in Wyandotte, and rests more than 800 feet of water. We found what appeared to be the wreckage last year while searching the area. We weren't certain that it was a shipwreck, but we were able to take a closer look this year. We thought it might have been the Kirby, noted the Society Director of Marine Operations, Daryl Ertle, Jr., 
Ertl and his team used the Society's remotely operated vehicle, ROV, to identify the vessels positively by the nature of the wreckage as being that of Kirby. Using combination of historical research technology and teamwork, members of the GLSHS underwater research team have mapped the area of the ship, were reported lost, then searched those areas using the organization's 50-foot research vessel, David Boyd. Marine sonar technology, Atlas North America side scan sonars employed to analyze Lake Bottom and identify submerged wrecks. In spring 1916, S.R. Kirby was towing a 352-foot steel barge, George E. Hartnell, both loaded with iron ore bound for Cleveland. The Kirby was under command of Captain David Garadin, a veteran Great Lakes skipper. Fierce northwest gales with winds clocked at 76 miles per hour in Duluth, Minnesota, descended on the lake and battered two ships as they plowed on towards Keweenaw. As the vessel closed on Eagle Harbor, the Kirby was struck by a massive wake, broke up, and quickly sank. Of the 22-man crew, only two were rescued. One of the two survivors, second mate Joseph Madura, later reflected the steamer broke up in two without a moment's warning as the ship went down, which took took up so little time I could scarcely believe my eyes. Cabins broke loose, rafts floated. I did not see any other men come up from the forecastle. And while I saw some of them afterwards clinging to bits of wreckage, I believe most of them were caught in the forecast and unable to get out. It is an interesting ship, and it's a pretty sad story, said Jill SHS Executive Director Bruce Lynn. Historical accounts tell that Kirby was heavily overloaded, perhaps improperly loaded, when she departed Ashland, Wisconsin. If this is true, she didn't have much of a chance in such a storm. It's probably a miracle that other ships were in the area that morning and helped Hartnell and her crew get to safety. On a lighter note, the captain's log dog, Tig, was rescued later by Eagle Harbor Coast Guard crew and safely delivered to his wife in Detroit. The S.R. Kirby's wreck site is being documented by society and her story will be told at Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum in Whitefish Point. That's a little deep. Yeah, and I don't think we're going to be seeing too many people go there to visit it. Now, didn't they say sort of offshore? How offshore is that? At 800. In Superior, I think there's spots where it gets that depth pretty quick. Obviously there. And they said more than 800 feet, so. Yeah. Are they? And they got some good side scan, too. Yeah. But at 294 feet long, even on its end, it wasn't going to peek out of the surface. It's like they've seen some shots of the side scan. Yeah. Yeah, that'd that'd be good to see. So it was uh, steel uh, framed with wooden hull. Is that what they're saying? Uh, An iron framework with a wooden hull. I wonder if that was because you because uh, that's about the period of time where we had a lot of the what they call those the hog backed, you know, like the iron sides. You know, so you're trying to they're slowly trying to stiffen these vessels so you can make them longer and carry more cargo. Except there you have the arches. Here you don't. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at the pictorial and I can't see that. Unless that's a transition period, 1890s. Yeah, because it, it had mass, but it doesn't look like you'd practically have any sails on them. Uh, it looked like more like working booms or mass for the, and on the forward mass, you can see the lights. So I, it looked like you got the lights up so you could see which 
which way the boat was traveling. Yeah. That so thank for the stern lights. And then here's one that uh, Derek uh, gave us the link to. Uh, age of discovery ship found perfectly preserved in the Baltic Sea. The best preserved shipwreck ever found from the age of Christopher Columbus and Vasco da Gama has been discovered at the bottom of the Baltic Sea between Sweden and Estonia. The new discovered Baltic Mary Celeste is also at the heart of 500-year-old maritime mystery. Virtual pristine condition. The vessel has been located by archaeologists at a depth of more than 120 meters, some 100 miles southeast of Stockholm. Some 99% of the ship is intact with masts still standing tall and its two swivel guns in their firing positions. A small tender boat is still sitting on the deck as the wooden capstan. Even the bilge pump and elements of the rigging can be seen. The bowsprit and decorated transom stern are also clearly visible. However, 60-meter-long vessel aft castle somewhere, somehow between... Oh, however, the 60-meter-long vessel's aft castle has somehow been destroyed. This, together with guns being in the ready-to-fire position, strongly suggests the ship was sunk in a previously unknown naval battle. Probably a small Swedish or Danish merchantman, the vessel is almost certainly built a stage between 1490 and 1540, most likely in the very early 16th century. It is therefore conceivable to, that it was sunk during Sweden's War of Independence, a three-year-long conflict between the country and its Danish rulers, which raged between 1521 and 1523. Alternately, the vessel may have been sunk during the resto swedish War of 1554 and 1557. Although the ship is by far the best preserved vessel ever found in Europe's Age of Discovery, it is of the Northern European rather than the Southern European design. However, the size of the ship and the shape of the perfectly preserved bow and the design of the anchors and mast and rigging are thought to be very similar to those of Columbus's two smaller vessels, the Pinta and the La Nina, which used along with a larger Santa Maria across the Atlantic and Discover America in 1492. Discovery will therefore help maritime archaeologists and historians understand more fully some of the ship's technologies available to Columbus for his great 1492 voyage of discovery. What happened to the crew of the Baltic ship is a complete mystery, where all or most of them killed in the attack, which destroyed the ship's aft castle. Were they captured by the attacking vessel, or did they survive the attack, but somehow unable to launch their tender, and consequently went down with the ship? Investigation of the newly discovered ship is being carried out by an international team of scientists, including archaeologists from the University of Southampton. The whole project is being led by Dr. Rodrigo Panchez Ruiz, a maritime archaeologist working the Sweden Offshore Survey Company, MMT, in collaboration with the Center of Marine Archaeology at the University of Southampton and the Marine Archaeology Research Institute of Södertun University, Sweden. Uh, it's almost like it sank yesterday. It's truly an astonishing sight, according to the doctor. I'm going to do something I probably shouldn't do, which is hit that animation button on that well, I'm just looking at the boat, and it's like, if it was in combat, how could it be in such pristine condition? I don't see holes in it. I'm just curious what sank it. Well, that they're thinking that maybe something damaged the rear end. That's what they're saying is missing because there should be a higher forecastle on the back. Well, maybe it, I mean, when it sank, 
from overloading or whatever, hit on the aft end. That would have got rid of some of the garbage oh, in oh. the back and then slammed down in the front. Yeah. I don't know. Some of the pictures are quite interesting, though, aren't they? Uh, beautiful pictures. And, you know, pristine-ish. I'm going to give them that. Not quite pristine. Pretty interesting. Did you take a look at the video? I did earlier. I'm looking uh, at it right now, and uh video is very, very nice. And I see about the anchor still in position. And as you look at the video, it's it's pristine is an interesting word because <laughs> it's got a lot of patina on it. It does, but there's also elements that you would not expect a wreck of that age to still have intact. It just shows that it's the conditions of where it goes to, you know, you, you, you know, dark, cold, uh, lack of critters that want to eat it. Oh, and yeah. that's the only way it's made it. Cause you don't have uh woodworms or something else. Cause it doesn't take long. And yeah, I don't see that, a single zebra or quag on any of this. No, no. Yeah. The video is actually very, very good. And you can see uh, the ship construction technique, butter. And I'm not, I hadn't finished looking at the picture, but I don't know if they went to the aft or if what I'm looking at is the aft end. Well, there is, you can see it like a bow spread. Uh, I can see the bow one, but I, I think we just looked at the aft end and there, the back end's got a, a section missing. Looking at the timbers, they're quite interesting. Yeah. Do they say how long it is? Uh, let me look. There's, you've got two articles on it. Yeah, 52 to 60 feet. It said 16 to 18 meters. Yeah. So so not an incredibly big vessel. Yeah, the video is worth looking at, though. Got all sorts of stuff on the deck. Got some items you're wondering what, they're all, what they are. And I can't tell if that's, uh, you know, they're like the windlass where you get up the uh, chain. I don't know if that's what mm-hmm. I'm seeing on the right-hand side. And I'm looking through the hatch deck, and that looks like either that's sediment. Well, it is sediment. There's sediment all over the deck and the boat that's on the deck itself. Interesting. Yeah, it's hard to tell. I like the video, though. Yeah. I'll have to watch it again. It's been more than an hour, so I can't remember it. Well, actually, there's two videos. I just went back to the other one and I'm seeing what it says. Yeah, one video is the uh, looks like 3D of uh, the pictorials put together. The front bow section on the uh, starboard side has a hole in it where it looks like it either collided with something, which could have been the bottom, and the back end is broken off. Yeah, so she did have some interesting hull damage. But you need to look at both the video of the actual ship and then mm-hmm. take a look at the uh, 3D, 360 view of the ship itself. That's made it a lot, a lot more interesting. Wow. Yeah, Be- beautiful. I'd love, love to dive that. <laughs> well, I'd like to play with the ROV around it. <laughs> Well, that does it for scuba news. How about some uh, potentially cool scuba gear? 
This one is from Scuba Diver Magazine, and they have a review of the Shearwater Nerd 2. And they're asking the question, is it the ultimate must-have gadget? And I hadn't heard of the, of the Nerd 1, so I'm imagining, did they just skip the 2, or did I miss something? But what this is, and Shearwater, who's known for their uh, tech diving computers, just about every rebreather diver, tech diver I know, dives some form of a Shearwater. Uh, but they've come up with a kind of a heads-up display. And what's interesting about this is uh, our dive buddy, uh, Bob Sweeney, had actually been prototyping a device similar to this that he wanted to make. Uh, this is the first near-eye remote display for scuba divers. The Shearwater Nerd has been redesigned for enhanced flexibility and reliability. In addition to the dive can and Fisher versions, open circuit divers can now experience the freedom of the Nerd 2 as they offer. Universal regulator mount allows divers to secure the new tur, nude, uh, nude, Nerd 2 to their second stage. And the combination of micro LCD display and the magnifying lens makes the data appear as if you're looking at a 25-inch TV four meters away. It is powered by a rechargeable lithium-ion battery. So what this does, if you imagine you've got your regulator in your mouth, in whichever way your hose goes off, this clamps onto it. And then that positions it about where it would show in uh, the vision field of your uh, dive mask. So you would look down and, and you could see it. Well, it looks like a low profile. I wonder how that would be in the current. Yeah. I mean, it might I, give you I'm, a little drag. Yeah. Well, I'm also assuming that this is like, this isn't your primary display for it. It's an alternate display. So you'd still have the display in your dive computer. This is just so that you don't have to, you know, lift your wrist or grab a console. However, you're displaying your, your Surewater computer, you just look down and then you can see it. Because that's, uh, like Bob dives a uh, a kiss where it's a little bit more of a manual rebreather. So you're constantly watching uh, a lot of your settings. And I think they do things like with flashing LEDs to tell you one thing or another. <coughs> well, this, this would actually give you more detailed information about what condition you're in. I thought it was interesting. They say... Uh... However, I can see regular divers seeing the benefits of having their dive data right in front of their eyes. It just requires a brain shift from the norm of computers being wrist or console mount, meaning having to grab it, pull it up in front of your face. Mm -hmm. This was always in your view. Look at that. What concerns me is when you see the it on, you know, when you look at it just sitting on the the regulator, it's like, oh, it's not that big. But when you show a picture of the diver, it looks like it's cutting off about a quarter of your field of view. Uh, I, I'm not sure because you're sort of looking down. I don't think about, I don't think a quarter. It would be interesting to see what that did, you know, visually. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be something that'd be interesting to try out. Okay, in the other picture underneath, now that one does look like it takes vision away. It's got a picture of them on yeah, the that, surface. That was a lot closer than the one above it. Yeah, that's... Uh, that's one you're talking uh, about then. 
yeah, but because I think I would have it farther down. I don't want to have it as far down as I could still see, because that's not typically an area that you're viewing because it's attached to your regulator. That's moving with you as you tilt your head up and down. So I want something I could just glance down with my eyes. Uh, also, I wonder how it is if you have corrective vision. Uh, you know, what do you have to do to adjust? Is it like binoculars where you can. That was my the, biggest problem with rebreathers is, is the mounts for your indicators for your O2 and what have you. I couldn't read them except on one or two different versions that had much bigger indicators. Yeah. I don't see a price anymore. No, I don't either. Oh, I see the one that you're talking about. Yeah, if you see the main photo in the article, that looks reasonable. But you see the other one, it just looks like it's way in the way. Yeah, yeah. And it's the same diver. So it just... uh, Maybe he bumped it or something. I don't know. Perspective. Yeah, they don't talk about. It. Let me see. We'll go visit the Shearwater site. Will they? Do they? I don't know if they put prices on their site or not. I just went there to take a look at it. Nerd Two standalone is two thousand CAD. The Nerd Two Fisher. I don't know what that is. F I S C H E R is twenty five hundred. Oh, that's a little pricey. Now, are they when they say standalone, is that including everything, or is that just as an add-on? Uh, let's see. The add-on is a, oh, Nerd 2 F-I-S-C-H Fisher connector for rebreathers. Yeah, this is this has got to be exciting for people to listen to us going through online manuals. Well, uh, then all they got to do is go to the Shearwater and look at it. Yeah, because yeah, you've got the Nerd to the petrol to the petrol fisher the paradix the paradix ai and the tetric so i have definitely not kept up on my shearwater dive computers yeah, and then the picture down below shows the nerd two mounts and the ccr mount mm-hmm. um or if you go all the way down then it starts showing you your diving multiple diving modes Got it. Open target recreational, open target technical, CC and BO, external monitoring, digital compass, and gauge. Wow. Yeah. A lot of features. Yeah. It, it's one of those things. If you're, I put it in the money is no object category. Yeah. I mean, if you're just, if you're the rich guy, if you're, you know, the billionaire, and you're buying gear, you know this is this would be one of them. I would, I would have. Your sure water of some sort. Yeah, Bluetooth integration, AL functionality, rechargeable battery. It's uh, recharge time is four hours, and I'll give you eighteen dive hours minimum on a full charge. Typical battery life is five years or five hundred cycles. And a replacement cost is $100 plus shipping. Yeah, because the Petrol 2 Fisher is showing up as uh, $14.95 Canadian. Why does it think? Oh, it's there in Canada. I thought it thought I was in Canada. Oh, we've got some video over here of of them with it. And it looks like you can adjust it while you're in the water. 
And aside from the pictures of the divers with it, some of the diving scenes are great. <laughs> yeah, go to the water, go to the site just to take a look at the videos. And the cave diving, that's interesting. I wonder if the Nerd 2 Fisher is the Fisher with the Nerd 2. Because I would believe that would be appropriate. Standalone would be you've got a computer and you're using the the Nerd 2 as a just a viewport on it. I'll have to take a look at this, but it's worth checking out. We'll have a link to this article in the show notes. So that does it for Scuba in the News. So I understand we had some people get out in the water this last weekend. Looked like we had two two boats get out. Looked like John had a crew that went out and dove the rock away. And I think they confirmed then, the location and the positioning of the uh, cage for the uh, metal that will be used to Support the uh, yeah. marker buoy, the permanent one. Yep, and I understand that the the preserve has has uh, acquired the necessary ballast to be put in the the cages. So that's what I hear. I know yeah. that Jim went out uh, with others to check the Havana, and he had done a scanning when we were out there two weeks ago, and he found a section that if you looked at the profile at the bottom, looks like a bump that is, you know, quite large in surface area and covered up by sediment. So when they went out and they looked, they did not find that, but they did not take prods to go through the overburden to see if they would hit wood. That's their plan or potential plan for this week. Yeah, they, they didn't have any way to probe to verify that that was decking. Right. And that Didn't might explain why the, yeah, why the side scan would show something that you're not seeing otherwise when you get down there. Well, it's possible. I mean, years and years ago, Jim was reminded me that uh, we had dove the Havana, and our second dive turned into a night dive, which we were not prepared for. And um, I came across an opening in the bottom and went into, actually entered it down to my two-thirds of my body. I left my feet outside so I could get my way back and picked up broken glass and item or bottles. Came back out, put that in the BC. When I came up, I was nowhere near the buoyed wreck or the buoyed wreck and or our boat. This could be part of that. Hmm. And that's why it's really interesting to go back out there and take a look at that. That would be interesting. And then I understand there's some plans to go out again this weekend. It looks like they're getting a flotilla organized, so there could be quite a few divers who will be getting out. Uh, I know that they were hoping to get in the barge and crane, and they didn't do that last week, so I wouldn't be surprised mm-hmm. to hear somebody getting on that. Also some talk of uh, clay banks or a reef yep, somewhere. Fisherman's Reef. Yep. You know, so some of it might just depend on weather and conditions and, we are a few days out, so you never know what it's going to bring. I thought it was going to be crappy diving. Uh, and I was kind of surprised to hear that they'd actually made it out because Saturday night there was uh, gale warnings. I kept uh, getting texts about how bad the uh, wave action was. 
Well, I know that some people have posted on the club site about the, I think it's Manasu, M-A-N-A-S-O-O, a newly discovered wreck. And the pictorials or the pictures they posted are freaking awesome. So if, they haven't, if you haven't seen it, go back to the club site and uh, on Facebook and go on down. It was by Becky Kagan Schott. Chris oh, Bell. that was a new wreck. Yeah. Oh, that see, I thought awesome. it was one that they had that they had found before, and it was just they took some photos. Yeah, those are those are beautiful. Well, they said it was discovered yeah, last year, and now they're documenting it for artifacts condition of the ships. But looking at the pictures, that is awesome. Yeah, yeah, just great photos. Yep. Well, uh, the pictures that Kevin that- put on there a couple of weeks ago. I'm scanning down see if I can find it. We're on the Jane, uh, 1927, yes. 1927. It's kind of, you will not find gold or jewels on this ship. But the visibility was, mm-hmm. God, 75, 80 feet. And the comment they had is, this is the kind of wreck you want to dive. This is the kind of wreck that needs to have a permanent mooring buoy on it to prevent you dragging an anchor. Because when you hit this oh, wreck yeah. with an anchor, you're going to totally destroy it. Because it is metal. Yeah, the the house on it and everything is still intact. First anchor through it, since it's getting really thin, is going to rip this to shreds. But yeah, the pictures are awesome. To handle. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, beautiful wreck. And then I think they also hit Lake 16, and there was tons of people out there as usual doing summer rescue classes, which has a tendency to muck up the bottom unless you get deep and you get away from the platforms. Yeah, I, I did uh, hear that there were some challenges. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it's hard to pick on new divers because they're new divers. So when you go to a spot like that where you're going to have new divers diving and or maybe some activities being done uh, that will stir things up, uh, you, you can't always count on having clear conditions. And that's not known for high visibility anywhere until you get down deep. What, 16? Yeah. Except during the winter when we have had some phenomenal visibility of the ice. Winter's beautiful. Yeah. Well, do you have a uh, uh, safety story for us this week? I, I have an interesting one also from Dan, and the title is 13 Foot Dive. The diver was a 19-year-old woman in good physical condition. She denied any history of medical problems, didn't take any medications regularly, completed her confined water training several weeks before with no problems, and was now doing her open water training dives. The dives took place in Florida. The diver was accompanied by her father, a certified diver with fewer than 100 lifetime dives. On the first day, the dives were uneventful, though the diver admitted to some anxiety related to being in open water and diving from a boat. Now, although gas arterial embolism is a concern for any rapid ascent, decompression sickness generally requires a significant exposure to depth and time at a depth, meaning i.e. decompression stress. None of the dives she had were deeper than 30 feet, longer than 40 minutes. She successfully performed all required skills, reported looking forward to completing her certification. On the second dives, 
Uh, second day, the dives were at a different location. The boat was anchored over a 13-foot deep sand bottom. The bottom sloped gently downward to the reef at a maximum depth of 35 feet. After they entered the water and began heading towards the reef, the diver's father and other witnesses reported that the diver appeared to be having difficulty with her equipment. Exactly what was wrong was never clearly established. Her movements seemed erratic. She seemed unaware of her buddy, other divers. Within moments, she ascended quickly in an uncontrolled manner from 13 feet to the surface. Upon reaching the surface, she appeared to struggle, did not establish positive buoyancy. Father made a controlled ascent to the surface, which was able to positive, uh, establish positive buoyancy for both of them. The diver had already abandoned her mask and regulator was breathing rapidly. With the aid from one of the dive guides, the pair returned to the boat. Board the boat, the diver was shaking, continued breathing rapidly. The crew examined her. She reported tingling in her hands, dizziness, aches in both arms from the shoulders to the elbows. Crew placed her on oxygen via demand valve. Since they were only 20 minutes from shore, dive operator sent a small boat to take her and a father back to the dock. They were met by EMTs who continued oxygen administration using a non-rebreather mask. Divers' symptoms did not change during the five-minute ride to the hospital. The attendant physician performed a thorough neurological evaluation, did not note any defects. The diver still reported the tingling of the hands was present, also complained of tingling sensation in the face. The aching in her arms had not improved, nor had the dizziness. Blood tests ruled out other potential causes for her symptoms. Chest x-ray did not reveal any lung injuries or abnormalities. Breathing rate remained elevated. She appeared quite distressed. The diver had been very shallow, and the risk of decompression sickness was virtually non-existent, even considering the rapid ascent. There were, however, few other good explanations for simple, or symptoms. Doctor contacted local hyperbaric chamber. Neither doctor believed the symptoms presented DCS, but in the absence of any other clear diagnosis, they believed treating her in a chamber was the safest option. They went to the facility, which is approximately 30 minutes away. The physician treated her with a Navy Table 6. Muscle aches resolved within the first 20 minutes at 60 feet. She became less stressed. Breathing rate slowed to normal. Tingling resolved as well. She was discharged approximately six hours later with no residual symptoms. In a phone call the next day, she denied, uh, denied any return of symptoms. No further treatment was deemed necessary. Now, the discussion was the dive profile, as reported, did not risk, you know, represent a risk of DCS. It was shallow. Witnesses stated did not last more than 10 minutes. It is highly unlikely there was sufficient decompression stress to have precipitated DCS. Furthermore, there have been little time or for residual nitrogen from the days dived before. The major concerns were the rapid descent or breath holding leading to a lung overexpansion, potentially a arterial gas embolism. Based on the diver's age, subsequent evaluations, symptoms did not su uh, suggest such. The tingling sensations and muscle aches were among the many signs and symptoms of DCS, but it is unusual for tingling to be present in both hands with DCS. Aches and pains are also potential symptoms, but are more common in one arm 
and in major joints. There was no medical imaging or lab tests that could verify DCS test. Test and imaging are still useful, but because DCS is most often diagnosed by ruling out other possibilities, this woman's situation had no clear explanation for her symptoms. The bottom line on this one was they had no clue what happened or why. They expressed, uh, the physicians expressed the opinion this was not DCS, but they wanted to act in the diver's best interest. The fact that the muscle aches improved with treatment seemed to support the DCS diagnosis, but does not necessarily do so. Breathing 100% oxygen at increased atmospheric pressure reduces and produces an anti-inflammatory effect. Even aching or pain due to muscle fatigue would improve in the chamber. In this case, time and placebo effect may have been the factors that most facilitated symptom resolution. Other physicians or faculties or facilities may have opted not to treat this diver in the chamber, which would have also been reasonable. Most physicians try to make decisions that are in the best interest of the patient, and as always, Nan is available to divers and healthcare professionals to assist in their decision-making process. Quite an interesting scenario and potential accident, but exactly what the cause and effect could not be determined. Now, that is an interesting one. Yeah. Yeah, because that's one where I was thinking, yeah, it just doesn't make sense. uh, So it could, like they said, it could just be time combined with a placebo effect of why it worked out. You also wonder if maybe there was something that maybe wasn't DCS, but somehow related to her coming up so quick. Maybe uh, bubbles were forced into a spot where they wouldn't normally be causing pain or pressure, but. But again, your lungs would have been where that would have happened, not yeah. your arms and muscles. Yeah. Yeah, so it was interesting. It yeah. Key item is when in doubt, do the positive and the uh, best care. And the, uh, the chamber was the best this one. Yeah. I mean, there's really no harm in it other than the cost. Yep. And if it worked, then it must oh, have been yeah. appropriate. Yep. Plus, it's quiet in there. And I always love a good chamber ride. When, when, you, when you don't need it, I should clarify. Yeah. And when you can have a covering yeah. when you get coal coming back up. Oh, yeah. Well, here's a question that's uh, safety-related. We had a discussion uh, with with some divers, and uh, it came up, you know, what is a way that you communicate to somebody that maybe they're taking too many risks for their diving ability? You know, it's like any activity, even if it's not diving, you all know that person who's, going just a little bit harder, faster, or rougher than what is reasonable. But, you know, if it's on a motorbike, you know, it's you're going to break an arm or a race car, you're going to, you know, you, you have some damage. But, you know, when it's scuba diving, uh, that, could, that can turn out to where they, they don't come home. Well, so that's assuming they're diving with a buddy or diving solo. Because if they're diving solo, there's nothing you can do about it. No, diving with no. you and they're diving off your boat. Mm-hmm. Remember, you make the dive profile based on the least experienced person on that boat. Right. Or yeah. least ways you should. 
Right. Yeah. Because if you're because there's a certain as much as we'd like to say you're not responsible, there's a certain responsibility as the if you're if you're taking a boat out and it's friends, you're not a charter operator, you're not licensed, but you've got people going with you. There is a, there, a perceived responsibility that maybe you might want to make sure that like I, I don't want to take, uh, you know, recreational divers down beyond a recreational limit. Yeah, you're not going to go to the Hume with recreational, right. just yeah. current open water divers. Yeah. So, you know, but if you wanted to go to the Havana, not a problem. Um, Rockaway is different because now Rockaway is past 60 feet. It's 70-something feet. Yes. Yeah, and bearing in mind that, you're, you know, the, the people involved are not instructors. So, uh, you know, I, I mean, my thought is that you have to be honest with the person. If you have that sort of relationship, if it's just somebody you know casually and they're not asking for your opinion and you don't know it and you don't have the opportunity to give it, it's probably not going to be well-received or welcome. But if it's somebody who you frequently partner with or you know or have some sort of relationship, uh, you might want to mention it, you know, that uh, I don't think you're you're up to the task or ready. Or maybe you might want to get that trimix if you're going to be doing X, Y, or Z. Well, part of the problem is if you're starting out and your buddy is starting out, you're both at the same level. And if one of the buddy wants to go a little deeper than the other one, mm -hmm. that's where you get into the peer pressure. Yeah. Well, in the case of buddies, is uh, that, you know, it was probably, you know, it was me and Jim diving together. And it wasn't until about dive 100 where I felt like I was really a good buddy. I mean, I was so worried about my own muscle memory and, and buttons and stuff. I, you know, if, if my dive buddy really had a problem, I think I'd have been challenged in being much help. You know, if he, if he could grab the regulator I wasn't breathing on, we'd probably be okay. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it takes a little bit to, to be a good dive buddy. And you weren't doing boat dives at that time. You weren't no. doing deep dives at that time. Generally, you guys were in less than 25 feet of water. Yeah, we, we worked our way up. I mean, we did, we did some relatively deep dives, but not, I mean, all within our training. And for reasonable amounts of time, I mean, we, we started off diving at Gilboa in the shallow end. Uh, so just something to think about, you know, if you're a new diver and, or if you're an experienced diver and you got that new diver who's just started to show up and all of a sudden wants to tag along, you know, it's a, you know, you may have to have those conversations. Well, do you have anything you want to plug, Mac? No, sir, not today. Normally, I would have been at the uh, in First Wisconsin. Well, oh, Oshkosh. The, this is Oshkosh oh, Week. Ah, it is Oshkosh Week. Yes, it is. Experimental Aircraft Association, isn't that the? Yeah, it's part of it. EA. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, that's the big mecca to go if you're if you like airplanes. So yeah. that was this week. Yeah, I saw Jason did a post. Was that where he went out? Is that where he was at? I would imagine he did, but I have not seen the post. Yeah, well, the only plug I would make is if you're enjoying the show, we would certainly welcome your support. Your $3 or more gets you early access to the show notes, and if you'd like to do that, you can go to our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Click on over to our Patreon link. Uh, we're on Twitter, at Scuba Obsessed. 
facebook.com forward slash scuba obsessed. Uh, you know, and if you can't do it, we understand those five-star reviews also help us out a great deal or commenting on posts or links that all gets us more eyeballs and views, which helps out the program. Always interested in having comments and feedback. Yes. Can't improve yeah. if we don't have that. Yeah, and we did have somebody who uh, talked about that they might want to come on the show for an interview, so I'm going to do some more research on that. Uh, so we may be having a guest come up. And then I still apologize to Rick Mixter. I am still uh, have to edit that episode. That one was just so messed up. It's taken me a while, so I need to get to it now that I've got a little bit of potential free time while the drywall dry- dries. Uh, we'll get that going. So I think we're to that time of the show. Yes. I'm sitting down. Well prepared. Okay. Yeah. Now th- this one is kind of exceptionally bad, so. <laughs> In fact, it's 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 board, it's borderline. I almost didn't didn't think we should do it, but we'll see. We'll see what everybody decides. If you don't like it, send us a good one. So here we go. After having their 11th child, a couple decided that was enough, as they could not afford a larger bed. So the husband went to the his veterinarian and told him that he and his cousin didn't want to have any more children. The doctor told him that there was a procedure called a vasectomy that could fix the problem, but that it was expensive. A less costly alternative said the doctor was to go home, get a cherry bomb, because fireworks were legal in their state, light it up, put it in a beer can, then hold the can up to his ear and count to 10. The man said to the doctor, I may not be the smartest man in the world, but I don't see how putting a cherry bomb in a beer can next to my ear is going to help me. Trust me, said the doctor. So the man went home, lit the cherry bomb, put it in his beer can, held it up to his ear and began to count. One, two, three, four, five, at which point he paused, placed a beer can between his legs and resumed counting on his other hand. Okay, that was good. I thought that. <laughs> it looks like the doctor knew his patient well. Yes, uh, that's, isn't that what you're supposed to do? To understand your clientele? Absolutely. <laughs> I like that one. That's good. So, we'll we'll end on that note. So, until next time, go out there and get wet, and be safe, and watch out for those cherry bombs. I like that one. <laughs> uh, oh, good.